0: For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and... I am recovering. I think I've got my hearing back. I'm recovering from mild temporary hearing loss. I'm, uh, this is going to sound pathetic, so probably make you laugh, but this is just the truth. So uh, we got uh, concert tickets this past weekend. It was actually a Christmas gift idea. Uh, we went to a Thomas Red concert last week on Friday, and I love music. I love country music. My my favorite thing ever is you know classic country music you know I like stuff uh, from the like the 60s up into the 90s even in the 2000s um, there's just so many great artists and musicians of that time frame and I just love that music and I, I again I don't it's not that I don't like newer country music it's just a different style I mean country music has morphed over the years I mean from you know, thinking back into the '50s with Hank Williams and how it's transitioned. You know, you get into the the '70s and you got guys like Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. You know, bringing in the Bakersfield beat and people talking about how that wasn't country music. And in my eyes, that's that's country to the core. And then you get into to '90s and you know you know '80s had a, a vibe crossover with pop a little bit. And the '90s, you know, we we got into uh, a little bit more rock and roll with it and, and, you know, so on and so forth. So country music has evolved and adapted and that's, I think that's where we're at now in 2023. Uh, it's just getting, uh, it's just getting away from what I enjoy and like, but anyway, Thomas Rhett, heck of an artist, heck of a, a show. Um, you know, really talented individual and there was, there was two other artists there, but I, was so mad that I didn't bring earplugs because it's not because I didn't want to hear because it was so freaking loud I couldn't stand it I mean the bass was ridiculous and uh you know the whole time I'm like I I really don't have that much interest in going to a concert but I love the the concept of it because it's family camaraderie we went with my my wife and my my brother-in-law and my sister and my parents and that was really fun that that whole evening it was just so loud there was Drunk people in front of us and falling down the steps and having to get escorted out and it's quite the fiasco. But I, like I said, I've sailed that to say I've got like mild hearing loss and damage that I'm trying to recover from. But it's all good. I'll uh, I'll have hopefully I recover. And I might have to get one of those hearing aid amplifiers this fall for for deer season, which uh, is around the corner. I can't believe how close we are to deer season. It is Starting to scare me, but uh, hey, going into uh, to this week's episode. So, if you guys turned uh, would have tuned in last week, you would have seen that we had uh, the pioneer of the compound bow, and that's what this week's episode is all about. We are part two with Sherwood Shock and the j- just his career story of shooting through building the compound bow and and this second half of the conversation first of all if you missed last week's episode go back check it out it's a pretty cool episode gives you the highlight the foundation for what we talk about this this episode Um, we pick up with the compound bow development we we start he starts talking about people he worked with the uh, processing materials a little bit of you know the, the tinkering that was involved and that transitioned into his his shooting from you know he, he would have shot uh, at, a, at a highly competitive level with a recurve and that transitioned into doing so with the compound uh, gets in a little bit about the national archery association if you look at the the manual for National Archery Association there's four authors on that and Sherwood's name is one of those four authors and uh, he he talks a little bit about the development of the Olympic team and, and the the place that he had in that development and then we get to talk about something that I found is really cool is his experience being around Fred Bear and Fred Bear's hunting camp grouse haven in michigan and he also talks about his introduction to meeting ted nugent and a a couple neat stories of ted nugent and and ted williams and just a couple other really cool names and experiences that you go wow pinch me that's pretty cool so again I, i hats off to sherwood thank you so much for being a part of our show, sharing your experiences, and I really hope you guys enjoy the show. Before we get to the show, just want to give a shout out to our sponsors. Guys, Radix Hunting, if you are trying to get your cameras out, expand your cameras, you want to get more standard, pull your SD cameras, the Gen 600 has you covered. Fantastic image quality, fantastic trigger speeds, affordable price. They also have their M-Core cell cameras, which are very, very competitive in this market as far as, as as far as coverage and price is concerned. So great quality products here. Trail cameras, accessories from the stick and pick side, camera mounts, adapters, and we've also got the availability of hunting blinds. So check out Radix Hunting. And lastly, Huntworth guys. If you want to, uh, you know, upgrade your equipment here and get stuff that's not going to break the bank, but it's going to keep you warm comfortable dry Uh, again I I just was blown away by the comfort and my maneuverability I really like their camo patterns their digital camera camo pattern disruption I I really do like I'm anxious to run that this fall but uh, from early season through late season uh, heat boost all the way up to their their light stuff base layers love it love it check them out it's uh, camel pattern and clothing that uh, you can't go wrong with. And with that, let's get to this episode. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of your shooting itself. So you started shooting, you know, recurve stick but yeah. bare bow. So yeah. tell me a little bit about that shooting and how your shooting adapted over time because you went through to a release aid and, you know, well, sights and okay. stuff like
2: that. okay. As an amateur, then I won the amateur and I was seeing the other guys that shot better scores than me because they were shooting sights. And so I shot bare bow when I won the national. Right. Just a no sight, no nothing. nothing. Now, would you,
1: was that quote unquote instinctive looking at the target, it's no instinctive, reference? Instinctive,
2: yes. Okay. Right. You weren't allowed to have anything on the bow. You couldn't even put a piece of tape on the window with a mark on it. Right. That was considered a, a guideline. Had to be strictly like that bow sitting up there, nothing mm-hmm. on it. And so. And that's the way I want it. Well, I wanted to shoot a higher score and be more precise, and I wanna So I knew I was going to, I knew early on I was going to shoot a sight because I wanted to hit the targets off and did Because I knew they weren't better archers. I knew they had better. They had a, a equipment advantage, mm. which I eventually had with a compound bow, and nobody could beat me with a compound bow when they shoot recurves. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I could be sloppy and beat them, you know, or anybody else could be. Mm. So so the in answer to your question, it's hard to do this transition sliding through here from going from a recurve to a compound bowl, uh, 69, 70, 70, yeah, in, in 1970. That was a very special year for me. I'd gone to a compound bowl I won the Pennsylvania State Field Championship in seven springs. I shot the first perfect round ever shot in state competition in a, in a state championship. And perfect
1: I, round being, being that, 10. That, so that time,
2: 560 score. Gotcha. Uh, 20 points per target and 18, 28 targets. Gotcha. 560 was perfect. And I shot a 560 round at seven springs in the state championship on the hunter round. And that was the first one that was ever accomplished, but I did it with a with a Gun
0: compound bow, right.
2: yeah. So, and I, I uh, let me back up here. A little. I got to get my head straight. I shot that with a Damon Howard recurve bow. I'm sorry, I gave you okay. the wrong. Because I then I switched over to the because Pennsylvania State would didn't recognize a compound bow. Right. They were, couldn't allow it, to, so I couldn't use it. But I'm still fighting that battle. Right. So, But then in 74, I want to say, mm-hmm. I think 74, I didn't shoot in a couple of years out there at the state championship. It was all held at Seven Springs. I shot the perfect score in 70. Then I didn't shoot in 71, I think, in 72, but 73. I'm back at one with a compound bow then. Okay. I think that's the order of business. I got over there in the thing, I got medals hanging there. I'd have to look at the years. Right. I don't honestly remember. So uh, so how did I do? Well, I the last time I shot competition on a national basis was in Jay, Vermont, shooting with my fingers, but a compound bow. And I had a very super unfortunate thing. And again, this it's going to sound like bragging. I don't mean to be that way because it wasn't. I'm leading the tournament by 15 points. And I'm in, we're in the – there's five rounds every day, every week in a row, and I'm leading. And we're in the third round. And I go to put my air on the rest. It's gone. The air rest had totally broken off my bow. Mm. I had a – and you're allowed to step back – let one group through you. If you can't be ready by that time, then you're disqualified for equipment. See? So I had to let one group through while I f- screwed around with that, trying to get something on there to get it, and then aim it, make it go where I wanted it to go. So till I got to where I could count on where it was going to go, I dropped like 25 points. Mm. And I was no longer in first place. And I wasn't in first place. And I And I... Then I got it. I got it to where I could really do it, and I was climbing a ladder. But in enough time, I ran out of time. Mm. But then I got third. Got third at Chavermont with the com- with the shooting with the finger division in compound bow right. in the highest division.
0: Prior to the release being in, uh, yeah. prior to the release being developed.
2: No, the, no, the, the the release was in development, and I had even made one, but I wasn't shooting it in the national the guy that won the national, the highest score of all shot a release. I just wasn't using it. I see. Don't forget, I was trying to walk both sides of four streets. Right. I was trying to sell it bows everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so many people were afraid of or didn't want to use the release aids. And well, I, you can do it this way too, guys. Here I go. I'm going to show you how to do it this way too. So that's why I was... I went release aid, then off of it, then back to it, and I shot a release aid with the recurve bow.
1: Okay, yeah, I've I've heard of people doing that. But I it's was not one of the first common. guys do
2: that, and Sherwood Loop, mm-hmm. that Gilfry, if you crossbow champion, showed me how he tied it on there to make it real precision and not come off and so on. That's what I did. I put one in my bow, and then what happened then? They were having, initially, they had just a steel pin hanging on the string. Well, after I put the loop on the string, Pete Shepley, of all people, immediately put a loop on the release aid. Right, yeah. And so you could go around the string with a loop and hook it on the pin and take it off that thing. Well, I was skipping that portion. I was putting the loop on the string, right. not on the release aid. So most kind of, and, and I'm credited today. for that. I mean, around the industry, they knowing knowing Well, most of them are dead now. they don't know anything anymore. But, but the knowledgeable people, and at the time, they all knew where it came from because it was talked about a lot. Sure, sure. And and I had a lot of attention because I had the stage. I was doing the seminars. I was doing the illustration. So I could, my mouth. I could plop anything I wanted to say. You know, I tell them I was, <laughs> and and it was it was good. So they didn't worry about that. It got to the point where I had bought spools of non-thread, big spools of it. I forget where I got them anymore. And I would I would cut strips of that, and everywhere where I did a seminar, I'd give them to anybody that wanted one, put it on a string, okay? So, and later on, I I was selling like 20 foot at a time for a dollar. And... Uh, Because I was pine, But at any rate, that was how that really devolved. Anyways, uh, now another thing. uh, What do you do for a cable on a compound? But they all got cables, right? Where did that come from? Well, I didn't know where it come from either, but I was from aviation and had aeronautical engineering training. And so I knew, again, near St. Louis, there was an aircraft company there that was making cable for Cessna because I checked with them. So I went to them. And that's where we started. And inside of five years, we bought more photo cable than the aviation industry did. Oh, my goodness. Yep. How things happen. Mm-hmm. What the hell? We need a cable? We just go look for one. Well, sure. You know, so those kind of things. And initially, the cable wasn't coated. Okay. Uh, so, But they had coated cables right from the start. They didn't have right. bare cables. But we had to learn to work with them. the way to attach it to the wheel and pin it fast, stuff like that. So we had to go through that process, but that didn't take long. It went hard, but I mean, we got it done. But this is the kind of stumbling blocks we hit all the time. But now if you sold 500 bows and they had the non-coated cable on and that made a little difference on how you did the wheel, then you sell that same dealer, the one that has the cable coated with a slightly different cut on the wheel, you get upset customers in a hurry. Is that right? So, well, yeah, they don't want. It. it's hard for them. Because they sold a bow to one guy, now another guy comes in and got another. Mm-hmm. They look at him and they go in there and say, Look, he bought his bow. I bought mine a month ahead and I don't have that. Mm. You know, he's, we got to be very, very careful. So I did my best to sell all the ideas to everybody all the time. You know, it's no fixed thing. This is a moving target. Right. And so, and that's kind of what it was. We were really, we didn't have enough qualified people. Uh, it, Machinists and so forth, and we didn't have like so many things you can get now with technology that's out there, it wasn't there, you had to figure it out. And even like where to drill a hole in the wheel for the cam, we shifted that all over the place because the closer you make that hole to the edge of the limb, the more relaxation the bow gets, right? But you can get it back to our relaxation that it doesn't perform efficiency. Because when you let go here, it's got to return. right? And if it's really lazy returning, it's not very efficient. So that was a stumble. We went through stages of this thing. And then our little home-built machine, we would deliberately draw the boat at a certain point point, shoot it at different points and then and graph it. And that was all hunt. That wasn't any, we weren't any brains or anything. We were just testing and trying
0: trial and error. <laughs> Do you remember the percentage let off on those early
2: bows? Oh, sure. Well, the ones that came out of Allen were about 30%, but it also depended upon which size wheel you had on and what the percentage of let off was, and the size of the wheel determined the draw length. Right. Okay, so it was really variable. Mm -hmm. It was always a variable. It was never a dead set figure, and and Hollis had it around 30% because, don't forget, he had a half-round aluminum limb. So he didn't have very efficient product to cast the arrow. So he, he did what he could do with it. He had to keep it up there or the arrow would have floated out. Mm. See? so But when we got laminated limbs, we quickly knew we were going to let give it some lead off. What were some of the speeds of those arrows in them first Jennings bows? Uh, we were... Well, we knew how to build them faster but afraid to sell them that way mm. because we would break each butt. We were delivering bows with matched arrows in the 220, 230 feet per second, and no recurve bow would do 200. Will we'll, uh,
1: recurve top ends usually between 170 and 180? Yeah. Okay. Pretty close. Right. So, and, yeah, light light worlds
2: obviously, difference there. Now, if I if you tapered a limb down to where you didn't want to use it much for competition, but you can make a shoot faster, that's why I tell them I had flight bows. Because you build them different. You couldn't shoot competition very well because it wasn't accurate. Mm. It wasn't stable enough. But it stored the energy and released it. And you make the arrow fly further. And that's always a judgment. Uh, you know, the, In speed, when you didn't have a chronograph, shoot the same rated arrow further, it's faster. Right. always to that.
1: So uh, you, you, you mentioned working through the game commission to try to get the the compound bow legal in Pennsylvania, which, you know, that, yeah, that did yeah, get accomplished yeah, in the yeah. early seventies. I think you said 72, 72, 72. So go down the road a little bit with us. What else did you do as far? Cause you know, we, we talked a lot about your career in, in shooting, uh, developing the bow, working with companies and stuff. So tell me a little bit more about that. Um, you know, work in the community type thing. The stuff from from you know compound bow getting legal to uh, working with. Uh, you, you did some coaching too, I believe. As far as shooting, isn't that yeah, correct? I did.
2: Well, you're cutting in a lot of area here. This gets real complicated. I uh, I was very much involved with the National Archery Association as well. And there is a natural National Archery Association instructor's manual. Has four authors. I'm one of them. Okay. Okay. It's been published in eight different languages and stuff like that.
1: And who were the other three names on that?
2: It was Bud Folks and um, uh, let's see. I now I'm going to make an excuse, but it's true. I got brain damage. I had a stroke, and I can't remember things. So I can't, can't you got to give me a little time. Oh, there, you man. got
1: all the time in the world. Well, I'll tell you what, I was <laughs> going to
2: tell you. Right here's a copy of the manual. I'm going to at the names on it. Oh, perfect. There was two ladies and one me.
1: Okay, we're going to get the manual here. Uh, he's got uh, all the names on it. This, is this oh, over on your uh, on your wall here?
0: The wall of fame. The
1: wall, Yeah, it <laughs> is a wall <laughs> of fame. And Julie Bowers.
2: Say that Julie again? Julie Bowers' name is not Bowers
1: anymore, it's now Bogey. Okay, Julie yeah. Bowers and what was the other one? Uh, Patricia Baer, Julie Bowers, CR folks, and Sherwood Shock. So, yeah. So,
2: so now, see, this, this was all part of the picture. The National Archery Association is what I did with the magazine, and I became very acquainted with the persons of importance in that thing to try and help them along to publish for them and remake reports for them and get it covered timely, and I personally went to places and wrote the article, did took the pictures and the whole thing just to keep it, somebody had to do it, and I did it. And so those are the things that, this was all overlapping each other. Right. And I want to say this too, now I, I shot competition, but truthfully, I was cheating myself in a way, because I was never ready, I didn't practice hardly at all. I'm, that wasn't how I made a living, and that wasn't what I was doing for the industry. Right. I like shooting, but, man, I I throw my stuff in the trunk. Think of this with golf, you know, you're a pro golfer. I throw it in the trunk when we got done with the round on Sunday and not take it out till my shooting time, the next event. Gotcha. Uh, but I've competed. I still placed, but I knew well, but I did well enough for what I want to do. Right. I was very present, I was known, and and I kept myself where I could communicate with people to keep the ball rolling. Sure. So, sure. What well, can
0: you talk about the uh, the Olympic team? Weren't you uh didn't you do something with the Olympic team?
2: Yeah. Uh, well I was Steve Lieberman's coach. Steve Lieberman is right now, this time the only four time all American at Arizona State University. Mm. He was my he's my Student, he also won the world championship twice. My student, so and then and now back to Olympic again. Uh, uh, Saltisic. remember earlier I mentioned Bernie Saltisic, the guy who took me to Philadelphia. Yeah, he had a daughter. I came along and I brought her in a pretty good, and she got third place and she got the bronze medal in Korea in the Olympics. So wow, so I've had been. And then any number of state champions I was involved with. I mean, and then Ginny Kelly, I definitely brought her from something. She had the talent, but she didn't know what to do, and got it rounded up, and she won the state champion. But not only her, a half a dozen. I can't even. Yeah, so many I don't sure remember them. Sure. Doesn't there? There's, and I don't want to make a claim on them. Yeah, I helped them. Yeah, I instructed them. Yeah, I was around for them. And but the other thing one of the thing was always my favor. I was very much of a technician with equipment, mm. and I said this many times. I said it to so guys don't even want to hear it. That I was competing, about it. I said you're a better archer than me, but I'm smarter than you. <laughs> That's, True, uh, yeah. Especially with a compound bow, I knew how to make it work better than they did. Right, and so, and it wasn't me being smarter. It's just that. I, get, I can make my boat do what you can. Well, this has got to be well known and interesting, like arrow stability. And then I and then I had a contract with Eastern Aluminum, okay. And we were balancing arrows, and and this is something I learned in the military because I was in ordnance and delivering missiles and bullets and stuff like that. A balance point form, and you can balance a. Everything has a balance point sure. or, you know, at some point. Well, you want to – there's a certain balance point on a given arrow for its own mass weight as to make it stabilize. And I was having – like Steve Lieberman that won the world championship. I could – he was shooting uh, – he shot the the color target. He was NAA. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that won he, – he was a four-time world – I mean – Four time All American at ASU shooting the round target because right. that's what they, that's all college did. Right. I stood on the field with him and no wind, and he could hit that target every time with no fletching on the arrow.
1: That's a well tuned bow and a good shooter.
2: Everything was right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Steve was the best mechanical guy I ever worked with. He's mm. good. And so. Well you take the guidance system off the arrow, you gotta get it balanced just right for that equipment or it's gonna go all over the place. Sure. And so and you talk about and I could take my own arrows and I cut two of the veins off with guys looking, shoot right in the middle. Mm. And they couldn't and they'd hell if they lost one feather in competition, they'd go nuts right right
0: so i uh I've heard that your coaching continues. you're now working with a grandson well, archery. a little bit i
2: got a, he I got him a bow and he shoots nicely, but he isn't interested in getting in the competition. he's in the other sports he's a very good baseball player, and so mm-hmm. he's got his heart in that nowadays and I try to get him going with golf, but I can't get him going. He didn't want to do it and I, then
1: that's uh, one of those timely things yeah, like uh, i I enjoy golf, I like yeah. to do it. My dad loves to golf, as you know Randy mm-hmm. um I like to do it with him, but at the same yeah, time here. it's not one of those things that we're, we're good
2: so you may want to, and,
0: you may want to speak briefly about your experiences up at uh, Fred bear's uh, camp oh yeah, a bit. Grouse Haven, yes.
1: If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their one-two planting system. This system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook.
2: Fred Bear has a, he leased a 2,600 acre farm from a General Motors executive mm. in Rose City, Michigan, and its name is called Grouse Haven. Right. And it had a, when I say fence around it, was not a high fence like for that kind of It was just a security fence. It was a fence, so people, but people got in all the time. and Deer got in and out. That was okay. But at any rate, it was all marked private, and we had guys live there to try and keep, keep it because we had a, a hell of a lot of deer in there. And we also had a creek going up through it. that salmon went up. We used to get them out of there. So, but that was at Rose City, Michigan. So what Fred did was he was a very good promoter always. He was always reaching out for the industry. and So he set up Grouse Haven, and he would invite particular valuable people, so to speak, VIPs, whoever, someone with magazines, someone with TV, some of them of all sorts, walks of life, that he thought could help the industry or was important to him. Plus his dealer network, plus his distributor network, plus some of the people that rep for him, salesmen. And so, and what he did, he, the season up there ran six weeks. He'd have five-day blocks. Mm. He'd have anywhere from four to six people each five-day. Okay. Well, I ran his camp for a little bit. And so, again, because I had, everybody knew who I was, and I knew who they were, so bad So I had that job, and so we would—they'd fly into Saginaw or wherever nearest by. Some of them drive in. They come all kinds of ways. Some there's an airport there. Some of them flew in mm. and stuff. And when I say airport, a private airport, a strip, because right. Grouse Haven, that twenty six hundred acres was a, a originally air force base it had a str- airstrip on it. Okay. Okay. So they'd come in and land there, and every now and then I'd see an airplane land, I knew know who was landing, but I'd find out pretty quick. I'd get out there and know who, could, who came on board. And so, and, and Grouse Haven itself, we had some bunk rooms, and outside we had a couple of out little log cabins. Somebody's a hunter. Mm-hmm. You know, had bunk there to sleep in and a, and a shower and a, you know, like a little trailer would be or something. And we had... We had three of them, and then we had the one we called the Taj Mahal. The really, really important people went in there. <laughs> if we had somebody coming in, real important, and so. we had a lot of at the time were VIPs one way or another. other. We had the governor of Michigan into it, so he got the. I was going to say, can
1: you can you tell us a little bit, like what some of those, like is there is there names that people that would would know that would go
2: to like that topic, like what what did that? I'll give you one big name that's well known, hmm. Ted Nugent. Is that right? Ted Nunes is a very good friend of mine. In fact, I talked to him last week. But Ted lived in Jackson, Michigan. He mm-hmm. was a Michigan person. His father was a policeman in Detroit. And so he thought he was going to be a cop always. In fact, he trained for it early on. But then he got so good with the guitar, and he made so much money doing that, that he now has a 2,000-acre ranch in, in Texas. So, and you see him on TV and stuff. And there's hunters. That's where he's hunting out of his camp there. And so, then he
1: also has a, a place in Michigan too, I believe, right?
2: Jackson, that was his old home there. And he's got, not hell, I slept with him at his house there. Uh, uh, he's also an automobile collector. He's got a pole barn there with about forty cars in, him, in Jackson. Yeah,
1: that's incredible.
2: I don't know if it was forty or what is. I only ever one time. He just didn't even want to take people in there. Right, it was private to him. But he had tree stands set up around, and he had food plots everywhere, kind of like what you got. Mm-hmm. And and so yes, they hunted, but he he only took very very few people got to hunt that except him and his family and very close people to him hunted the Jackson place, mm. but not Fred, not Ted himself came up to, now I'm going to tell you a story there, and this he, this happened. I arrived up there. I got the name of Hapfling, was with Bear Archer Company for a long time, and he was a major guy running Grouse Haven from the logistics point, you know, for people being invited in, made sure they got a letter to them, and made sure they got picked up at the airport, which I eventually helped him with, but always oh, at his command. But this is what happened. The first time I went there, and I'm going to say it was 82, I think, but it doesn't matter. First year. I get in there, and it's late when I get there at 11 o'clock, and it in the main room in there waiting for me to show up. And so I couldn't talk to him, and he, said, well, he says, well, you're going to bunk in the trailer behind the Taj Mahal. Well, at this time, at uh, any rate, I go over there. And he says, just go in there. He says, the guy's sleeping in there. He's got a couple of dogs, but they're very friendly. They won't give me any problem. So I did. So I go around and park my car and stuff like that, and I go to the trailer door, and knock on a little bit, and I hear the dogs inside. I open the door, and the dogs are really friendly, and I look up, and here's blonde hair hanging over the bed. I thought that Hap set me up with something. He's going to, this is not good. (laughs) I thought this is a joke going on here or something. Well, that hair belonged to Ted Nugent. (laughs) That's how I met Ted. I didn't know him up to that point. My goodness, how did that that
1: friendship uh, strike up from that point then?
2: Well, uh, Ted's a really decent guy, I think, a nice guy, and uh, he's very much a family man, and uh, he's real easy to get to know. And once again, Ted's an aspiring target shooter. Right. So no, what I said earlier, no here. please don't take it that way. But a guy can hit the middle more times, suddenly a hero. So Ted was really nice to me and really good to me and very honorable all the time. And so it was really easy to get to know him because he really liked the game, he liked the equipment, and he wanted to know about compound bows, and he wanted to know about the limbs and so forth. So, And so that's just how it came together. And, and I got to know him very, very well, and I'm not even sure how. We just got along good. And uh, then over time and, well, since that time, I kept the relationship a little bit i don't I don't bother him. he's a very busy man. he's always on schedule, but like he cut himself with a chainsaw and I called him, and he had a real serious case of uh covid mm. uh, about two years ago now, and I called him and his wife's name is shemaine. Mm-hmm. She answered Ted's phone, and that just doesn't happen. I thought, boy, it turns out she was just screening and. He, because very few people call him on that phone. It's a private line. And so then I told her it was. And then uh, she told me he was doing well and going back to work. And about 10 minutes later, he called me. He was doing better. Good. And I don't remember who that was. That was about two years ago. It was public notice that he was, had COVID and was quite sick. I see. He, he was, they were worried about him surviving for a while. Mm-hmm. But he's, he was okay. But at any rate, uh, and... If he does a concert anywhere I can get to, I, if I give him a call, he'll say, "How many you want?" He'll have pickup tickets. To, he'll have tickets for me at the pickup window. Wow! So very cool. And I've done that, and then on a numbers of occasions, like well, the Pennsylvania Bonners Festival, I was very much involved with that for 50 years. That would have lost we'd have lost that a couple of times if we hadn't been running hard. But at any rate, he did a show in Williamsport, and. Course, I had called him and I knew he was going to be there. And I went to the show, and that and he made the announcement on the stage that night that I was in the house and that I was re, the uh, operator or the whatever the hell it was, of the, the, the bowl festival, right? Right, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he he always gives it a pitch, he always does, and he does his Fred Bear song in the show, absolutely. He talks yeah, about our well known song, The Spirit of yeah. the
1: Wild, absolutely.
0: You know, Mitchell, we heard a lot of names being thrown out in this last hour, but you think about the names that we've heard, you know, there's in modern archery there's the big three. Tom Jennings, Fred Bear, and Sherwood Shock. Yeah. (laughs) Known as the Big Three.
2: Right, right. That's Fred Bear sent me that card for Christmas, that laminated card on the Mm -hmm. end there. And that's Tom Jennings and me and Fred. And Fred wrote on there says, What does it say?
1: Christmas of 1986 from Fred.
2: He was one of those kind of guys. He did things like that, personal things that were took attention. He did it for lots of people, and he just was a real the special The heavy-duty threesome. Yep, That's what he called it. That's a joke, more or less. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> That's... Uh, you know that's
1: the thing that i took away too randy was the amount of of names you know if we start throwing uh fred bear tom jennings pete shepley ted nugent um you know the the amount of influence in people uh, are, are there are there any other you know outstanding memories of of anybody specific or um you know shooting or hunting memories that you want to leave us with here
2: well there's a lot of well-known bow hunters my favorite and my personal friend is bob frotsky and he got a couple of books on how to deer hunt and stuff like that Frosky's there's books around here somewhere well there now okay there's frotsky now and that i got another picture but i mean it just happened to be laying there that very buck there we shot another buck and we have a picture like that with there alongside each other we shot him on a tree stand same tree stand. I shot mine at 4.30 one afternoon. He shot his at 7 o'clock the following morning. That's Bob Frosky. What is he? clothing? That's his design. Mm-hmm. He worked okay. Now I'm going to tell you about Frosky. If you saw L.L. Bean or any of the manufacturers with ducks on their sweaters, mm-hmm. only one company in the United States made them, and that was the Knitting Mill. Frosky's our guy. He's the guy who did it all. He was the artist. He set up the knitting machines. That's Frosky. That's him. And there's... Now, this is a guy from Boyertown that I had... When I was running the camp at the time, I needed some help. And Dallas Miller from Boyertown, I went to high school with him. And and I, he's the guy that I had the hunting camp with up at... Uh, um, I said it a while Was that across. Potter County? Was that Potter no, County? No, this one up in... English Center, an English Center, very good. Yeah, yeah. So, any rate, I called Dallas because I need somebody that knew how to skin and gut and track and stuff like that, and he come out to me, and and he was so happy to do it because he wanted to meet Fred, and he at the time had a suburban. So Fred, he had Fred was in the front seat when they were going somewhere, and he had Fred Bear right on his dash with a intel, pen. Fred Bear sat here, and I used to kid him all the time. You never asked me to put my name there, <laughs> of course they shouldn't either. But that was Fred, and he liked Fred a lot. Of course, Fred sure, was a sure. very likable man. I was going to so, say, tell
1: tell me a little bit about Fred Bear from your your experience. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say he was a, a very humble man.
2: He was. He was a very quiet guy. He was very tall. He had a. Gotta say this carefully. He had a. I won't say ladylike, but he had a, a voice more. High higher pitch voice. Higher high pitch, pitch voice. Okay. Yeah, iron mind. Yet, and but, and when he laughed, he would laugh from top to bottom. He would giggle. <laughs> he was a he was a funny guy. Good man, and so, well. He was a heavy smoker, so whenever he, he had to wear oxygen all the time. He mm-hmm. had to use it all the time. So, and the way we promoted things, he would go to a big shore, say he wanted to, at Cobo Hall, he wanted to be there. Well, I'd have to pick him up at the airport, and the first stop we'd make is at a place to get oxygen for him. Mm-hmm. And we would have arranged that of time and he'd get the oxygen on. And then before he got the airplane, I'd have usually take him to the airport, and then I take the oxygen back. see mm-hmm. and it, and I only did that with him about three times, but somebody had to do that every time somewhere. Goodness. but each time I did it for him happened to be in Michigan because he went there a lot, and at the time i was I had an apartment up there i I wound up at different times I had three or four living quarters around the United States, and I had one in Michigan, so it was easy for me to do that. Yeah, I see. Uh, did
0: you ever do any uh, hunts with Fred where you were filmed?
2: I Well, right there at Grouse Haven, but I never went out on any of the other hunt with him. But what I did do is Ben Rogers Lee, again, Benny Lee, Ben Rogers Lee, turkey calls. He was five times world champion turkey caller. Mm-hmm. I did videos. He and me did videos together. I did shooting. He did the calling uh, and shot with a bow and arrow shot a couple of turkeys with a bone there. Okay. And he in, So he was a Ben Lee, was a Ben Rogers Lee. So at any rate, uh, it, other personalities, who can I tell you? One of my favorites, just because I love the man himself, was Ted Williams. Okay. Uh, and Ted Williams one time down in Houston, and I made a lot of athletes love hunting and fishing, and they go to the sports shows. Right. The national shows. And they, of course... Sometimes they were actually uh, promoting somebody in there, but uh, so I got to meet them because they'd also shot bows. I must have given a 20 bows away over the years, a big guy, including Ted, mm. and so we get to talk to them from there every now and then, but one time, <clears throat> Tom, Jennings and I, it was like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, we walked in the lobby at, a, at the national show in Houston, and we sat down there for just a minute to talk a few things over, and Ted walked in. Well, of course, we had both known him from before. He came over and sat, and we talked to him for at least two hours. Mm. He was a hell of a guy. He loved fishing. He liked outdoors. He liked hunting. He shot his bow and arrow. He liked that. And he was, a, he was a, a Marine fighter pilot. Is that right? He was. And when he was deferred, he could have stayed deferred, he went back into active duty, to fly in Korea in combat. Mm. That was the kind of guy Ted was. How was Fred at shooting at the bow? Uh, he knew how to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> but could you whoop him? <laughs> Fred was left-handed, and he was a total snapshooter.
1: Right. But I know yeah. there's a lot of information out there. People yeah. you know, did yeah. interviews and stuff that talked about him in – Instinctive shooting and, and running game and stuff like that, which is mm-hmm. something that's not even talked about anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's taboo to do that now. But it was a it was a normal thing at that point, right? For to do for, what? for 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 uh, f- you know Fred, as far yeah. as his instinctive shooting and uh, talking yes. about shooting at moving game and things like that, like yes. it was a it was a style that I, I feel like Fred Bear kind of uh, almost. Uh,
2: put a label on or like it's that he was known for in a sense he was known as being a very good sportsman because he did press that but i want to say this to you know this if anybody in the whole world says they saw fred bear shoot they're lying is that right he wouldn't do it oh okay i can i said okay but they say he went to show he saw him shoot and he wouldn't do it he would refuse to shoot his show okay. so he didn't do it and a couple of years back i had a guy at the Boat Festival up there, said that he had pictures of him and his dad shooting together up there with Fred Bear. Fred Bear was never to the Boat Festival, never was. I see. And in the early parts, they used to turn animals loose to shoot them there, and he was opposed to that. So he, but so then when I came, became very deeply involved with it and was so close to him, Said, Fred, you know, they let that go a long time ago because it's in violation of state law, too. Right. And so we, we quit that way a long time ago. So he was scheduled to go there on two occasions. Both times was in the hospital at that time and couldn't go. Mm. But he was never to the Bo Festival. Now, Pennsylvania, he was never there. Right. So if anybody says that, it's not true. Howard Hill was. Okay. Howard Hill was there in 1962. And he did a nice demo. He could do a good demo shoot. He's a good shooter. Okay. He's different story. See, there's guys out there that were really good do it and knew that. Fred wasn't trying to be that. He he was a big game hunter.
1: Was Howard Hill somebody that you crossed paths with?
2: Me? Uh, Yeah, you. Oh, I knew Power. yeah. Okay. I know his nephew's running, still has his business down in Arkansas. Okay. Jerry Hill has it. Yeah, yeah, I knew him. Okay. I didn't know him well, but I knew him. And he was buddies with a guy by the name of Wiffen up in uh, Milwaukee. And I met him up there and had spent a little time with him when he was with Wiffen. Wiffen was a manufacturer that made arrow feathers for uh, arrow building products is what Wiffen did. But I met, and he was good friends with, they went hunting together at places, Wiffen and him. Mm -hmm. And, And so that's how I met him and got to talk to him and i talked to him on the phone also because at one time i was soliciting for ads way back in the magazine time yep. and i didn't hesitate to call him so i did and so
1: yeah a a, a ton we packed into this this hour and a half um oh. incredible stories can, can 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 did you believe we'd be talking about this kind of stuff for this long
2: well, I did because I—it's scary. There's so many things that happen. To be honest with you, and you just happen to be there, and you don't even know for sure why. And you just—it happens in front of you. Like, and so many things came. It just seems unreal. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. I knew we could fill an hour and a half because I golf with Sherwood, well, and now.
2: I think that was I think, the funniest, that I, I
0: think that was one of the funniest things that
1: uh, that my dad brought up w- was you, you guys were talking about that you were, you brought up Sherwood mm-hmm. and he said and he's still a hell of a golfer. <laughs>
2: he is. Well, he is. I, uh, I used to be a half a jock. When I got out of high school, I had a contract. I was at baseball. Okay. And well, well, see, at that time of the year, school isn't over till like middle of June, and then I was playing American Legion. So I went down to Sarasota, Florida, to the tryout camp, and I was signed. Two guys came to my house and said that, you know, I could go down there for the tryout camp. And my mother said, told him, no, he played ball long enough. He's got to go to work. (laughs) Sherwood,
0: at 89 years old, still hits the golf ball farther than a lot of the 70- and 65-year-olds
2: that we play with. Yeah, that's... Sometimes by accident, but <laughs> hey, I swing hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I my motto it. for golf
1: has always been swing hard in case I hit it. Yeah, That's I don't.
2: Right. <laughs> uh, At any rate... Surewood, player. He's, yeah, he's very good. Absolutely.
1: Player. Well, Sherwood, let's wrap this up. Yeah. Um, we've we've been we've been rolling for a long time. Again, I I really appreciate you yeah. taking some time out of your day and talking with Randy. Thank you for introduction. Sure. Thank you for for being here with us and and steering conversation with us. This has been great. So, uh, any 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 parting words
2: for for this show? I guess maybe I'm, something comes to mind now as we're talking. Been what something that Larry said Randy said earlier was. About the Olympics,
1: mm-hmm.
2: we were very instrument. We, the them authors there right. and me, were very instrumental in getting Olympic archery into the Olympics. Right, the National With, Archery Association. Without us, it wouldn't. Without that group. Right. Because here's what happened: the 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 Olympic committee will not recognize a sport unless it's standardized for in college. So we had to certify instructors. So we went to Penn State, and we got an accredited course from Penn State out in, what do they call it, Valley, Steam Valley? Somewhere, whatever. Okay. Summertime, two weeks. We're, mm-hmm. we're prospective coaches, or known coaches, but weren't certified. We set up a certification program and had them come in, and we certified them Made everybody's standard off the standards in that book there. And and so this became recognized by the Olympic Committee to qualify. To, so we, our first colleges that we did big schools like Arizona State University, like Washington University, like Texas uh, and Louisiana, we sought outside. And they had interesting people there that wanted to do some of it. So we had help in getting it going, you know. And they'd send somebody, and we get them certified. But that certification track led to presenting it to the Olympic Committee. And the first year that the Olympics, the archery was in the Olympics, was nineteen seventy-two.
1: Mm. Same year as a compound. Yep. Yeah, that's that's incredible. That's, yeah, that's, that's
2: the first, and that's the first time, incidentally, uh, terrorists. Remember terrorists at the Olympics and they shut it down for a while, terrorists up on the stage and stuff? That was the year 72. Guess what? It was the building the archers were in. Mm. As fate would have it. So, and. That's incredible. so, So, I think that's a pretty. That maybe is one of the bigger steps I was involved with. And it was, you know, it took a lot of preparation and execution and time, and I would spend them whole two weeks, what do they call it, up over to Nittany Mountain, it was something valley, well-known. Happy, Happy Valley? Happy Valley. Happy Valley. Happy valley. Yeah, that's what it's called. And so, at any rate, we'd go there, and, and these people come in, and we'd, and we'd arrange, they'd get dinner in there and sleep there and everything mm-hmm. and, and and get certified, we sent a lot of people away, and those particular people, some of them became coaches I ran into later at the Olymp- at the tryouts for mm-hmm. the Olympics, and I attended a number of them. I was a f- I was also a rated official for Olympic tryouts, so I attended some of them. And these guys had come around. Some of them that, um, you know, I saw some 20 years later mm. that were still very much into it. but they were students. Some were students, some were already the coach at the school they were at, like and some of them were lady coaches. We had ASUs was a lady coach. Texas was a lady coach. Louisiana was a lady coach. But they were very interested, and I was glad to have them mm-hmm. because what in progression, what this did was we were trying to set up a network of certification. So when we had these key college peoples, the, we had the assistant athletic director out of Texas, of all things. Mm. And so she had a hell of a lot of influence. So with her influence and sending people, we pretty soon had Arkansas, and we had Alabama, and we had Florida State, and we had Florida and stuff like that. Influential people that could help us, you know, and did. And so this whole networking to get it going until we finally got it rolling and got in the Olympic committee, they finally got us approved, and... Uh, Steve Lieberman that I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. was then the let me get this right he was on the International Olympic Committee recognized as a world champion not the Olympics but a world champion and Jim Easton of Easton Products who was the United States representative to for archery to the Olympics. Steve was the assistant. Wow. Okay. So that was, again, and I was contracted. I had contract with Easton myself along the way and different things. And I had one opportunity to probably go there, but I, was, I wasn't, I I was busy. I had something going. Yeah, we, we've picked up
1: on that. There was a <laughs> lot going on in that in that 60s, 70s time frame.
2: And, and it didn't let up, 80s and 90s, it just didn't let up. I finally gave up, I gave in on the the last thing I did, besides the Bow Festival, I did that until three years ago, but the last thing I did actually at the national shows was 98, that was the one, that's 23, 25 years ago. So I completely got away from, well, hell, everybody I knew was dying, and I didn't, I didn't have friends anymore, I didn't know who they were. Mm. So.
1: Gotcha. Well hey, I, I so think that's I probably know, one of those things we'll probably have to do another one sometime and we'll kind of unwrap more of the Olympics, unwrap more of the bow Festival and some of those other things you did on. But I think for now we'll we'll let you go on this one.